0: Direct from the web, it's Billy Masters Live. And now, please welcome your host, Billy Masters.
1: Oh my God, where was I? Monica's asleep at the switch. You know, that's the problem with an engineer that drinks. Yes, you. Anyway, welcome to the show. I am, of course, your host, Billy Masters, and today is, well, now they're right on the switch, Thursday, November 18th, 2021. So a programming note to begin with. Next week is Thanksgiving, and last year... We didn't plan on doing a show, and because we were in the middle of the pandemic, a lot of people had emailed me saying that they were sad that there wasn't going to be a show because they couldn't travel, and they were alone for Thanksgiving. And so Charles Bush and I just did an impromptu show that day just to keep people company. And also, as it turned out, we were alone. And um, But, you know, now we're... Everyone is off doing their own things, and I'm not doing a show. That's the thing. There is no show next Thursday. Um, so I wanted to just let everyone know that. So today's show, I was telling my guests backstage, has kind of been put together because of one of my guests. Um, the last week's show was our 100th show, and I really kind of wanted to kick off the second 100th there will not be another 100 shows. I'm just telling you right now. I can predict that. But the next 100, nonetheless, 101st show um, with people who I really liked and really thought would be good chemistry together. And the last time Michael Riedel was on this show, he had said, you know, the next time you do a piano show, I'd really like to be on with Bruce Valanche. So, of course, I said, Bruce, want to talk to Riedel? And he's like, I love Riedel. And that's where the show came from. And then, of course, there's Charles Bush, who, you know, fits into any group. And because I'm not going to be here with him next week for Thanksgiving, I thought, why not have him this week? So, I'm going to start with Michael Riedel. So, Michael Riedel is a co-host on New York City radio station WOR, theater columnist for the New York Post, former host of the television show Theater Talk, and author of two fantastic books that if you're looking for a holiday gift for a theater person... Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway, and Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway. They are extraordinary books. And they're the kind of books that I like because you can go back and read a specific chapter, or you can just read a section. You can go back and use it as a reference book. It's something that sits on my bedside. And I am pleased to welcome Michael Riedel back to Billy Masters Live.
2: Hey, Billy. How are you? Be with you. I'm
1: great, Bill, uh, Michael. Great to have you here. You know, three people asked me recently, and so I'm going to start with this because we didn't cover it last time you were here. Why are you no longer on Theater Talk?
2: Well, uh, Susan Haskins and I did that show. Uh, God, I think. How many years? 25 years. 25. Oh, my God. And um, things do run their course. And I was kind of eager to move on and try other things, particularly the radio. Uh, You know, I got involved Mm -hmm. on Imus and the Imus in the Morning show uh, when I was covering that uh, gigantic Broadway hit, (laughs) Spider-Man. Imus started to bring me on as a regular panelist, and then he gave me a weekly segment, and then I wound up getting a radio show on another station in New York, and I just felt uh, there was too much on my plate with writing books and doing the column and then getting involved in the radio. And And I really had felt that I'd done my My time at Theater Talk. So when I got the uh, job as the morning radio show host, at WOR, I thought, I got to concentrate on this. You know, this is a four-hour live show every morning, and that takes a lot out of you. So I uh, departed Theater Talk, and um, I'm happy to say it only lasted six months after I left.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that nice when that
2: happens? It is. (laughs) True.
1: I mean, we don't wish anyone bad, but it does really speak to your... Your importance to the show. Is it something that you miss because you were very good at it?
2: You know, I, I do believe things are fun for a long, long time. And we had a blast on Theater Talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we started with nothing. I mean, we, we, we never made any money. The whole thing was a non-profit. Of course. We started yeah. on Channel 69, if you can believe <laughs> that. I can. Yeah, it was public access. And we used to be on at 2.30 in the morning. Oh and, really? Yeah, the very first show we ever did was with uh, John Simon, the late uh, very mean critic for New York Magazine, and Liz Liz McCann, Elizabeth-, Liz- Elizabeth I McCann, who just died a couple of weeks ago, sadly. Yep. And you know, John was in his doing his best Dracula imitation. That mm-hmm. I- the theater is <laughs> terrible these days. And <laughs> Liz, God love her, was picking her nose and trying to remember a show she saw the other night that she kept calling uh, "crazy for me," crazy. For me. <laughs> It's quite <laughs> They put <on> own- <laughs> <laughs> And weren't you, at one
1: point, didn't you work for Liz?
2: I did, yeah. No, I did. Absolutely, yeah. You know, so. my, my first job in the theater was Liz McCann's summer intern for... Oh, oh wow. I can, t- I can tell the story now because Liz Please. is no longer with us. But my very first professional, if you will, writing assignment came from Liz McCann. She, at the time, uh, was also running the Big Apple Circus. And the Los Angeles Times... Commissioned her to write an article for their uh, Sunday magazine about confluence mm-hmm. of the theater and the circus, <laughs> and they rejected Liz's article. And so the um, office manager said, "You know, you're a Columbia history major. Write, rewrite it, rewrite it." So I don't know much about the circus. So I went to the Lincoln Center Library and I took out a couple of books on the circus and I started reading them. I thought, "Geez, I this sounds familiar. These passages I've read before." Liz had just lifted them. No. I just dropped them. I <laughs> them together and sent them in. So I went home and I had a weekend and I completely rewrote this whole thing about the circus and the theater. They sent it in and the LA Times accepted it for publication under Liz McCann's byline. I wrote the mm-hmm. thing under her byline. And uh, of course, Liz didn't give me any money. The office manager felt so guilty. She took $25 out of petty cash and paid me. And that was my first professional writing <laughs> job.
1: You know, one of the things I love about you is that you've really done all media. You've been a writer of, as we said, columns, but also books. Um, you've been on television. You've been on radio. Do you like all the media? Do you have a preference? Do you just like variety and bouncing around from one to the other?
2: The one that pays me the most is the <laughs> one I like the best. And right now it's radio. Really <laughs> it. Although I just finished a uh, piece on Hugh Jackman for Vanity Fair, and uh, the payday mm-hmm. is not too bad. But I just wanted to, one quick note about theater talk. Yeah, when nice. we were really scrappy and we were we were in some crazy studios. And in one studio that we had, they were always filming. And now this is back in the '90s, before internet mm-hmm. porn. But everybody was doing phone <laughs> sex. And
1: oh, right, in those commercials right. and things.
2: And so we would go into this studio, and I remember once we had Edward Albee coming on, and I walked <laughs> into the studio, and there was this. Naked woman, tangled up in a phone cord, phone cord, coked out of her mind, rolling around. All <laughs> nine, oh, nine, 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 nine. And I was like, "You have to get out of this bed because <laughs> Bobby is coming here." And she was like, Oh, I said, "Get out!" Of here. <laughs> we got her out just in time before Edward came in. I mean, he wouldn't have been bothered by her because, frankly, that would not have been his kind of thing. Oh, but he
1: would have laughed, probably.
2: He would have. I think Edward would have found the uh, the humor and all that. So. Yeah. But we had some crazy times back
1: in those days. Um, I I just read the two books that have come out about Elaine Stritch. Um, yeah. And um, and then I guess there's a third one that I have to read that sounds kind of dishy. But uh, you come up quite a bit. And I know from watching on Theater Talk, you were one of her favorite people to interview her. And you had a very special rapport. Can you talk a little bit about her?
2: Yeah, we got to be friendly. It was actually through uh, theater talk. This was when oh, L- wow. Elaine's career had kind of crested. And uh, I was at, I think it was a benefit for second stage. And this was back in the days when uh, the only jobs Elaine could get was she would sing the Ladies Who Lunch at every venue. Of course. That's all yeah. she did. And I was walking down the aisle and here she comes bounding up in her leotards and her white pork pie hat. And she's said, kid. I love that show of yours. I want to be on." Wow. I said well Mr. rich we'd love to have you on any time said i'm at the carlisle call me okay. so i called her the next day oh yeah i'm at the carlisle call me not before two in the afternoon <laughs> so two fifteen, i call her and she said yeah 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 i want to come on the show i need a few things okay <laughs> i need a car and driver for two days I need a makeup at uh, Bergdorf's, and you're gonna have to pick up my suite at the carlisle for a week I said, Wait. It's PBS. I mean, we don't have any money. She said, let me see what I can do. An hour later, she calls back. She said, she was making a movie for Paramount. She said, I got Paramount to pick up everything. You're off the hook. (laughs) And then she (laughs) shows up and she said, now I need some receipts. The studio, she said, you got to fill in these receipts for me for tax purposes. (laughs) I mean, I am implicated in one of the biggest tax scams of all time with Elaine Switch. I hope the IRS isn't listening. (laughs) <laughs> I'm signing her receipts and she's like, want me to sign some receipts for you too? This is great. It works. They never said. So at some point the IRS would come after me for some Elaine Street. <laughs> <laughs> My name is on the bills. But she was want to sign it. She, We always got along. She always felt that I was somebody who, because I could be a little controversial back in, their day, in those days, but she felt I was someone who told the truth about the theater. And as she was saying, all that charming people in it. <laughs> And she liked that about me. And she and I, we just had chemistry. I mean, I used to take her out to dinner. always had to pay, of course, because she was the cheapest broad on the planet. She would order not one meal, but she'd order two or three meals. Because she'd say, I'm diabetic, and I might have an attack in the middle of the night. (laughs) So you'd pay for three meals for Elaine, you know. But we always had a good time. And uh, she once said to me, she said, kid, if I were 20 years younger and you were 20 years older, we'd be putting up the jam together. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> great expression that nobody has used since 1940 I tell you <laughs> since, they <put> up jam.
1: <laughs> since they put up jam
2: exactly so.
1: And I don't see Elaine Stritch putting up jam really at all
2: <laughs> The last time I saw her, I went to visit her it was before she moved back to the bosom of her loving family from the Midwest whose name yes. she was unfamiliar with uh, she <laughs> was in touch with any of them for 35 years. she was uh, she was at the Carlisle. And the room, as she said, looking like a nursing home around here because all the (laughs) pills were out. And she had some stuff installed in the bathroom. And um, she got a uh, fruit basket from from Alec Baldwin. And she looked at it and she said, I hate this shit. And she just started (laughs) taking the pears out and throwing them across the room. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs pears from Alec Baldwin? Boom, hit the wall. (laughs) oh
1: i could again i could hear Elaine elaine's stories forever i mean the books are both very good i i always like seeing different people's point of view on the same subject sometimes about the same event to see where they intersect and where they're clearly divergent
2: one thing i one thing quickly i'll say about elaine and it's in the book singular sensation because i took some mm-hmm. time a chapter about edward Aldi and um you know one of the uh comebacks that Elaine had before she did her great show at Liberty was she was in the revival of A Delicate Balance at Lincoln Center. But Mm -hmm. she was very difficult. I mean, George Grizzard hated her, absolutely hated her. Because, you know, Elaine, she futzes around, the attention's all about her. But Andre Bishop, who produced the revival, he explained to me, he said, you know, I cut her a lot of slack. And so did Albie, so did Edward, because he knew her well. You know, she was sober at this point. She'd been a big drunk for much of her life. But she was playing in uh, a delicate balance she was playing claire who's an alcoholic and a chain smoker and elaine had given up both cigarettes and alcohol but every night she had to put herself back in that mentality in that mindset back to those days when all she did was grab a bottle of vodka and smoke and that andre who's a very sensitive person could tell was the thing that was making her scared and insecure yeah,
1: George said something like that in one of the books where he talked about how impossible she was. And he said, but if I, something, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, if I think she's impossible, imagine being her.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, at one point he was so fed up with her. The curtain came down where they were taking their bows and he slugged her. We <laughs> he, he ran to her dressing room, he got her, her uh, curling iron and chased him around trying to hit him with a curling iron. As Andre said I mean, in the book, he said, the only time you were safe in that theater when was the, when the curtain was up. It it came down. (laughs) But as he said, when the curtain was up, they gave some of the greatest performances I, any of us, have ever seen in the theater. It was a remarkable revival.
1: Oh, I will know. I mean, and again, what was so interesting about her in that is regardless of who was speaking, you couldn't take your eyes off of her, which of course is that great actress trick. Oh
2: yeah, believe me. (laughs) She had that trick mastered for years. She stole. I saw her all the time. I saw her steal scenes right out from everybody else. Frank Langella once said, I will never work with Elaine Stritch. Frank said, I'm the greatest scene stealer of all time. Until I met her, she beats me. I'm not working with her.
1: Michael, I'm putting you backstage, and we'll bring you back out with everyone else. Thank you, Michael. All right. Our next guest is because uh, Michael Riedel wanted to speak with him. And, of course, I can never get tired of speaking with the fabulous Bruce Valange in Mid-Belch. Was
0: that a belch? No, that was a fart. But let's 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 not split hairs. (laughs) (laughs) How are you, my love? Speaking of splitting hairs, I'm, I'm carrying on. I'm loving all of this. Were you, were you quoting George Shakira's in that, uh, his book? <laughs> it? No, it was George Prasad. George, George has written a book, actually, with a friend of mine, Lindsay Harrison. And, it's, mm-hmm. uh, and he talks about doing company with Chris when he went in uh, after uh, Larry Kurt. And mm-hmm. then they toured. Uh, and uh, he, he says actually the same thing. He said Could you, His compassion was, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be her. Wow! All of this insanity going on, and to get out there and just have—and so he—he uh, he was a huge fan of hers. when they were—he uh, was drinking at the time, uh, and they would go out and they would drink. A bit of beer, they were in, in America, and and mm-hmm. he did London with her, I think, briefly. Anyway, I thought maybe you'd read that. That's the other. Well, it.
1: I've got that book sitting here, which I haven't read, yeah. and I want to have him on as well.
0: There is. Uh, well, good luck with that. <laughs> <He's, you> know, <laughs> what he's, is uh, happening? There's, there's my face. Oh my that's God. it. Uh, he's uh, he's very reticent. You know, really, he's, he's one of the great types.
1: Yes, he's, well, I, I spoke guess. with. Um, with, um, with out of
0: the glasses, there. I'll just look down and have a lot of. That's,
1: that's okay. Stuff. You're fabulous.
0: I'm, fabulous. I'm fabulous. What can I do? Um, so,
1: what's interesting? You, you and I were just talking a couple weeks ago that you were supposed to be down in Florida next
0: week. Yes, I was supposed to do Thanksgiving weekend at a new theater called the Saver, yes, in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, apparently it failed a building inspection, which I did not think was possible in Florida. In <laughs> <laughs> they inspect those buildings really, and then they fall <laughs> down anyway. So I, I wasn't sure. Uh, I, I you know I thought it'd be a ploy, but that they they pushed the, the, the season back, uh, and I'm going to do it March 12th. Okay. So I will be there with uh, for spring break, where the boys are.
1: Oh, uh-huh. thank God. That'll oh. be fun. I will make sure I'm there for that. Um, so I, I was going, you know, I didn't really uh, do your intro, but the intro was, Bruce Vilanche has written virtually every witty remark that has come out of someone's mouth for the past five decades. And it was the, it was the 70s. Uh, <laughs> okay,
0: I, wrote, I wrote for Stretch, but, uh, but she was wittier.
1: It, uh, did you get paid by Stretch?
0: Not by stretch, no. Okay. <laughs> jump was the longest movie in the world was titled "Elaine Stritch Picks Up the Check." <laughs> Longer than House of Gucci, you sit there for two hours and forty-three minutes waiting for her to pick up the check. Nish, Never. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it would, I think, it you and met- I. <laughs> I think you and I talked about this. That the first person that you really wrote for and learned how to write in their voice was Bette Midler. Is that correct? Well, yeah, that's
0: true. <clears throat> I have to give credit. Uh, the first person I actually wrote for professionally was Kay Ballard. Oh, and a lot of people can say that because Kay, like Ted, the job he had was writing for Kay. Uh, they were. Um, uh, she harvested uh, new talent. She, was, she had a remarkable facility for that. And there's quite a list of people who, uh, who started with her. But, uh, you know, it, she was already, she was Kate Ballard, and so you know, she had that, and I, I, I could write to her. With that, it was uh, really pretty much the very beginning, although she had a writer, Bill Hennessy, who actually mm-hmm. was not a professional writer. He was a hairdresser at Bergdorf's. And Mr. Girard, that was his moniker. And he wrote for her, and... Uh, because they were, he, I think, did some work on fiddlers. He was a fiddler on the roof at the time. And then he would go to, uh, he got the job at the Continental Bank. And he was in New York. By that time, I, I was hooked up with her, but I was uh, in Chicago, writing in Chicago too, pretending I was Michael Riedel. <laughs> and, and she, um, so, but uh, the divine was something that, that, that Bill Hennessy came up with, with her at the very oh. beginning to write for that. But, but, you know, I elaborated on a lot. I mean, she didn't do any political material uh, at, the, at the point. It all very, it was very you know, late 60s day stuff. And Fire mm-hmm. Island, you know, it was, uh, she knew her crowd, because that was her only crowd back then. And then as she uh, blossomed and crossed over to a straighter mainstream culture, uh, she began uh, changing. And the as M was, uh, we used to say, Every, everything you're afraid your little girl will grow up to be and your little boy, too. <laughs> but that was, it was a way for her to mine all the things that she loved. All the music from the, the 30s and the 40s. And the, when that nostalgic craze happened, she was, of course, at, in the forefront of it. Uh, because she found the beauty in all that stuff. She found the beauty in uh, a lot of throwaway, a lot of trash, disposable mm-hmm. things. I mean, Do You Want to Dance was a, a little rock song. Do you, you, you want to dance? Do you, do you do? And she turned it into this aching ballad of lust and romance. And, and she's found that in that song. That's her genius is to find you. Uh, so that was what I was a part of.
1: You know, one of the things I know about her, and and I've talked to her about this, is she loves doing research. She's a big fan of, like, delving into the forgotten corners or this was a song that never went anywhere, but let's re-examine it. Is that something you like
0: to do as well? Well, as she always said, if uh, she wasn't doing this, she'd be a librarian. (laughs) And their other joke was that... uh, uh, cause I had to go into show business because otherwise I'd be a word processor. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, it was one of the other. She was either going to be a hermit or going to be out on stage, you know, sticking for jugs and carrying on. Uh, but yeah, I, I do. I, I, have, there's a certain OCD part of me that likes burrowing in and finding out stuff. And it served me very well when I was a journalist because I was always looking for facts as opposed to alternate facts. And, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, uh, and, and still now, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm a repository, I'm a cesspool for me.
1: You know, one of the things not I not love about, about... I don't
0: know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't stop.
1: <laughs> what I love about you is that you can get into somebody's voice, into their speech pattern, into their vernacular really easily. And I'm curious, is there somebody that you've tried to capture their voice and it just <laughs> has eluded you?
0: Well, generally, it's people who have no voice. and uh, you, <laughs> Well, that's true. You know, I mean, uh, I, on the, the kind of shows that I write, the award shows a lot, uh, you get a lot of actors who uh, have no stage persona. They have mm. they inhabit a character. I mean, Johnny Depp, there's no you know, Johnny Depp at the Palace has never happened. So, <laughs> and, and, and so when he would come on to the Oscars, we'd uh, uh, have to find a, a, a character for him, and that was difficult. So the, the good news is that you can write about the category, and they can just do that about the category. But doing these these things, he discovered that, and with talk shows, he discovered that uh, you have to have some kind of a persona, and he kind of he landed on a persona that is somewhere between Hunter Thompson and Captain Jack Sparrow. Mm, and right. that's who he does when he goes on talk shows or award shows, or any of those. So those people are. Keanu Reeves is hard to write for because uh, we had a disastrous thing on the Oscars where we tried to get, do a Bill and Ted, and uh, and he and he gave it all all he could. He played the character, but it's bad, bad, dude. I'm still apologizing. Fruit <laughs> basket, fruit basket, fruit basket. <laughs> uh, it's hard, you know. I. Uh, I I have a facility for it, and I mean it's it, it's there for me to, to mine most of them. Uh, if a playwright or a screenwriter has to create all of that stuff from of, scratch, and so when I'm doing that, it's a whole it's a much diff- more difficult job, and it's really? less fun because you have nobody to do it, with it unless you're walking around. You know, if you're Patrick Dennis and you're walking around with Anthony Mame in your head, you're having a very good time. But it's you know, it's, uh, if you're if, you're not right. You're right. The Ted Bundy story. <laughs> well, there you have Ted Bundy, You can, you can. But any, anyway.
1: oh, Bruce, your audio is coming in and out. Oh, it's garbling
0: a bit. If well, I, I'm
1: gonna, you know what I'm gonna do. I, when I go to Charles now, I'm gonna kick you out of the studio. If you can log back in, maybe we'll have better sure. luck. Okay. okay. Right, Thank you, my love. Again. Oh, but what I was just before I let you go, I just want to finish this thing is I've done a lot of um I have a lot of friends who are comedians and I will see their acts and a lot of times will give notes and what works, what doesn't, what could be expounded upon, what can be cut. And one of the most frustrating things for me is I'm like, that's a great joke but it's not your joke. It's not in your voice or it doesn't work uh, yeah. for you. And I'm sure you've come up with this, which this is hysterical. This is gold, but this person couldn't pull it
0: off. Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, a lot of times that happened on Hollywood squares. Really? Younger, and and we would have people who we, who we would give them a joke because we were trying to do a comedy show. And, uh, and, <laughs> sometimes it worked and sometimes uh, if they were unaccustomed to being humorous uh, or if they if we just didn't get it in their vernacular uh, it would just kind of stick and i i, I have an example of stuff like that now i'm sure like we all know all out and therapy <laughs> has managed to you know, um of Bruce- deal. <laughs>
1: All right, Bruce, I'm going to put you backstage We're yeah. log back in and uh, we'll have you with everybody. Thank you, darling. All right. And now, of course, you know, I think he's one of the most frequent guests on Billy Masters Live. Charles Bush is a legendary playwright, performer. His latest film, The Sixth Real, has swept the film festival circuit and it is soon to be released commercially. We will talk a little bit about it with my darling Charles Bush.
3: Well hello, darling. Oh how goodness. are you?
1: Another Thanksgiving almost. Yeah. I was telling them at the beginning how we shared Thanksgiving together last year. We
3: did? what did we do? We did a
1: show because everyone was just sitting oh, home and right. couldn't that's travel. Right.
3: That's
1: right. So it was a it was one of those impromptu shows. I see you, Bruce, thank you. Um so I want people to know about The Sixth Reel, which, of course, there you are all in many, many, many guises. But um, one picture, which, of course, is not an official picture, and I, it's it's somewhat of a plot point, but I just want Don't to ask that. you at this point, right, I know. Yeah, anyway, I so want that. to ask <laughs> I want to ask you about this.
3: Oh, my,
1: my, my, my. My, my, my. my. Yeah. What is it like to be in bed with Tim Daly?
3: Well, you know, I have to say, you know, in my brief film career, I've had love scenes with Jason Priestley, Tom yes. Gibson, and now mm-hmm. Tim Daly. Well, that's pretty good.
1: That's not bad. Well, you are writing them for yourself.
3: Yeah, that's true. And, and <laughs> he, um, well, Tim is just a wonderful fellow. And um, it was the very first day, I'd only met him once, very briefly, and uh, years ago. And the first day he shows up on the set, he has, you know. Get into bed with me I felt like Mae West is tip. Like, oh, okay. yeah. come on in honey and uh, and we were shot this movie a year ago last October at the height of covid before there was a vaccine wow. and with so many protocols in place I think we might have been really one of the very first uh, TV or film projects that that sag um, approved mm-hmm. and so it, it, it was it was crazy but you know when we finished um, there were about 80 people involved you know with cast and crew and no one got sick
1: isn't that amazing
3: yeah it could it could be done we were also so you know we shot the whole thing almost the whole movie except for five days uh in new york city but most of us shot on soundstage it was like being at mgm in 1932 and we were all sequestered you know so we were uh when we weren't in this shooting we were all staying in the same strange hotel where we couldn't Mm -hmm. see anybody so we really were in a bubble and, that, and in what
1: period of time? How long did it take?
3: Oh, we shot this thing so fast, honey. I mean, it was shorter than we're, I'm going to be on the than I was waiting for you just now. It um, <laughs> was um, 15 days. Wow! wow. I say, I, I'll give away the plot because you know nobody's going to remember in an hour what we, what we talked about. But in, in the movie, um, Julie Halston, my longtime comedy partner, uh, is uh, co-stars in the film with me, and Tim Daly. Ends up seducing both of us, and yes. so we had. So the first day he showed up, he got in bed with me, and you know, and he's he's a very straight guy. He's with tail leone I think it's his, his, yes. his yes wife. I don't know, but you know, he's just good natured, wonderful fellow, and you know, he's just so sweet. And I just had such a good time with him. And it was, you know, I guess you could say it's the closest I've had to sex in so many years. You know, <laughs> uh, even though it was just totally platonic. And then a few days later, he had to get into bed with Julie. And, and I got kind of jealous. I just, as you should. I just got jealous. And, you know, I was co-director as well with, with uh, my longtime colleague, Carl. Carl Andrews. So at one point, as director, I felt compelled between takes to go over to the bed and, you know, whisper <laughs> to Julie, you know, darling, it's, it's best not to get too sexy. Just keep it for comedy. Play it for comedy. <laughs> And you gave her a little bit
1: more interaction, shall we say, with him than you got. Yeah,
3: a little bit more, a little bit more, yeah. But anyway, but he—he's he a very smart guy, and you know, we—the uh, part was a little uh, underwritten in the script. And when Oh, we first read it. Yeah, it was a little bit sort of romantic feed, you know, kind of thing. And uh, uh, and he said that he had some suggestions. And of course, you—you know—it strikes terror in a writer. <laughs> You know, what if they're bad and yet you have to try to, you don't want to alienate that person and, and you have to somehow navigate this. Fortunately, he's very intelligent and every single suggestion he had really improved each scene. So, you know, uh,
1: and you are also very open to collaboration. I know that in your early early days, certainly everybody sort of brought things to you oh, and no. you wrote to them.
3: No, 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 no,
1: no. Oh, I thought you wrote for people's characters I w- I specifically.
3: Wrote for them, but they yeah, didn't, they didn't um, suggest anything,
1: but it was sort of crafted around them.
3: Yes, but that's different from, from people a like, plot point. No, no, it's different from people actually making a suggestion or me saying do you take
1: suggestions pretty,
3: well i i don't take personal criticism well at all <laughs> <laughs> not at all no but uh, no uh yeah i take a good suggestion yeah you know you'd be stupid not to you No, know, in, in the case of my old theater company um each person you know and, and that was just created because they were just friends of mine from different places in my life and we they were the only ones who had agreed to put on a Show in in this strange bar, you know, in a scary neighborhood. But what just was maybe it says something about the people I know that each one of them had a big and rather outlandish personality. And and as Mm -hmm. Bruce is saying, each one of the I used to call their trip, you know, Mm -hmm. that thing about them that's eccentric and and fun. And and like like Julie Halston, who was not really pursuing an acting career when I found her, she was. A job uh, as a corporate librarian on Wall Street, but she talked with this, you know, Comac accent, and she would just, you know, have this kind of uh, delivery, and and she w- just, when you would chat with her, she would kind of become a, sort of a 1960s talk show hostess, and draw <laughs> thoughts and reflections upon the death of Marvin Gaye. You know, that's how <laughs> she would talk to you. So I just would, I was so intrigued and enraptured with that that I would somehow try to put it into the character of the Dowager Empress Aunt Vulva in ancient Byzantium. <laughs> sort of, and each person in the company was like that. So I was so fortunate that I could just mine from them. But that's a little different from them actually saying, this is what I do, and I'd like you to uh, use that. They, they were just delight. And, and in each case, really, you know, I think they were all so thrilled to play with me and to mm-hmm. have me write these parts, I guess I, I always saw it as, as a, a, a gift that I could give someone mm-hmm. is, is come up with, um, you know, when you know someone and, and talk, you hear about their, their certain fantasies that they've had, and then figure, hmm. like Julie, for instance, uh, she and I, one of the things we had in common when we first met was that we both had this obsession growing up as teenagers with Mod London. And the Beatles and in Carnaby Street and Julie Christie mm-hmm. and, and so Julie always had a bit of a fantasy growing up in Comac, Long Island, as being a, a London <laughs> Dolly Bird, you know Judy Geeson or that sort of thing. And so we, when we were at Limbo Lounge, one of the little plays I wrote was a spoof of, or homage to Mod London, and she got to play a, a, fa- a '60s fashion model, and that was mm-hmm. my, that was kind of my my gift to give her, to a way of seeing herself that she that meant something. And, and so I, I, took it really seriously over the next seven years with, with these same people. What would, what would it be nice to do? And sometimes with some of the, the boys, like my friend, Andy Halliday, uh, you know, who could play was wonderful playing these very outrageous, uh, female characters in drag. But I knew that he also, you know, he, he was a cute boy and he, you know, had to yes. work hard in his body and, so for every drag role where he played, you know, the bizarre um, you know, female prison warden, I would also write another part where he could be the cute uh, waiter or, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I I loved it. I You know, it was a fascinating thing. For, and, and I still do it to this day. You know, there's a wonderful actress who I've worked with a lot in the last few years named Jennifer Van Dyke. And I. Oh, and she's uh, incredible. She's just wonderful. And, and she um, she has a kind of a Catherine Hepburn kind of. You know, androgyny to her in, in, in life. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's been, I had never really uh, ha- wrote what these called trouser roles for women before. You know, I've wrote a lot of parts for guys to play in drag, but really never the opposite. But with Jennifer, she uh, has that quality that, that uh, I, so I, so when we did Cleopatra, I had her not only play um Octavius Caesar but also his sister Octavia and so it's fun to have her play both the you know the d- different sides of her own persona so I I love that and I you know I've been doing it for myself of course for for 40 something years just trying to know what it is about me that you know is kind of fun or interesting and so you know so I've been sort of the Bruce Valant to me
1: yeah but also to a whole score of other people right is there anybody who you've thought was such an interesting character as a person that you couldn't ever work into one of your plays that you still want to that you're like this is the type of person I'd really like to capture in a play
3: well you know it's funny about Bette Midler you know I've been I've been kind of involved with Bette Midler for 20 years on a on a movie version of my play The Outer's Wife yeah right it started it's it's going to happen. It doesn't happen. It does So, you know, I've had this, you know, somewhat of a relationship with her and, um, and I must say, I, I could write very easily for her in, a, in not, not what Bruce does. Cause I can't, I, I can't, I could never, ever write for like an Oscar show. I can't write jokes and you know, I, I just can't do it. But um, as far as a, a character in a play or a movie, I um, almost everything I write is apart from Beth Midler and, <laughs>
1: is, where, I guess since you brought it up where is Al wife at this point is it still I in limbo of, or
3: I started, <laughs> yeah I mean it was it was all uh, full steam ahead about a year ago wasn't and
1: it Bet and Sharon Stone was that who was the last one,
3: one? that well and then after that actually this big financing company was all set to we're, we're ready and then I don't I'm not really in the loop on it to be quite honest it sounds kind of nutty uh-huh. but but uh, um, no, so I, I don't know really uh, the, um, where it stands. It's not dead, but it's it's very slow moving.
1: <laughs> um, I I would like to mention, even though it's not going to help anyone watching this show, that your Christmas performance is coming back this year, yeah. after missing a year, which I still haven't got to and. Uh, Now, people, it's sold out, I'm sorry to say, but tell people about it. It's at the Theater for the New City, which has been kind of your sort of adopted home for
3: so many years. Well, really, you know, I'm out. You know, it's no secret how old I am, but uh, although we don't have to say. uh, (laughs) uh, I've been, the Theater for the New City, I've been involved there since 1980, maybe. Wow. They they produced my very first play. um, And uh, I've just. It it ha- it's a wacky place. It's a, um, a multiplex for the avant garde. Way down on the Lower East Side, and this remarkable woman, Crystal Field, has she is the founder of it, and she's still running it with a, an iron fist. And she's survived everything, and now she survived COVID. And she's thank God. Got, and she's got. I'm not not. She didn't get sick, but she her theater survived COVID, and mm-hmm. um, they're they they almost never stopped in a certain sense and and uh she's somehow got the the city to to get her an air filtration set uh wow whatever system and yeah she, so she's back so yeah so so we decided to do times this Times screen had i known you know in 1984 when i when i i wrote it that i was still gonna be playing it so many years later i wouldn't have made the character 24 years old <laughs> and then there was a the miracle
1: of the theater
3: well, there was a period where I was self-conscious and I took out the one line that really made it clear how old she was. And then another decade went by and I thought, well, now I'm, I'm so far beyond this character that, you know, uh, why not? And there, there's a great story about the wonderful French actress Sarah Bernhardt who played mm-hmm. um, Joan of Arc when she was way in her 60s. And there was a, there was a scene you know, where she's at the tribunal you know, and they say uh, that the, the, the inquisitor says, you know, your name. And she said, you know, uh, uh, Joan, at your age. And she, and she just looks straight at the audience. And, and I think she said 19. And the whole French audience went, oh, they stood up <laughs> hearing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it not quite like that when I, when I say I'm 24, but uh, a little bit. Uh, yeah, and so, yes, we thought we, so, so we used to do it as a full production it would run, you know, several weeks in the holiday season. And when I did that in 84, 85, 86, 90, 91. And then about 11 years went by. And we never did it. And then, then oh. Carl Andrus came into my life and, and we decided to put it on just as a, a one night stage reading where we hold, mm-hmm. we hold the, the, the books. But we're all dressed up and we, you know, we move around and we have musical numbers and and it's become this strange ritual where this, not only is it the same cast, but the same people in the audience <laughs> every year, and, and you know a couple of them are Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. Just have come every all these years and bring their children, and they, we see the kids grow up. And uh, it's it's I, I can't quite understand it personally. I mean, I've never had that experience of seeing something every year, but but it, it really means something to. Um, this audience i think it's it's partly i mean there's a nostalgic quality of course it's a story it's a christmas story about it's a, it's kind mm-hmm. of like a christmas carol it's a wonderful life but but it's set in the 40s and i play a, a tough nightclub cutie irish flanagan who learns a big lesson you know on christmas night um, but i think there's also a nostalgic element for the east Village, which. Is mm. there but not quite what it was and so for a lot of these people who come to the show i think it's the only time they probably go to theater of the new city which is a bit frozen in time and it's a little bit like catching a glimpse of, of me for, in my earliest incarnation when i was performing the show is at the limbo lounge not that far from theater of the new city so there's right. a nostalgic element of the sort of 80s new york um all, all the lower east side all that, I guess, works in. And um, it's, it's, it's very special. I, I get kind of, you know, there are times, I, oh, I'm, this is too much shopping around. I can't do this anymore. But, <laughs> you know, it's so heartwarming. And um, uh, just the response. And, and the fact that it's so, we don't do any advertising at all or, or post social media, anything. This time we actually did post on social media just to let people well, know. Well, you put it back. That we were back. And it
1: sold out, I believe, in ninety minutes,
3: something like that. Yeah. Well, we also it was last audience. Wednesday. It, well, that's true. We used to we used to pack in, uh, and it was kind of you know three hundred people in a very tiny space, and you know with no aisles. I mean, really, it was not right. And so this year we we've limited it to hundred eighty, and and there'll be actually a center aisle. You know, oh somewhere. wow! So, yeah. So uh, it's just more sensible. Yeah.
1: And well, be- people, you won't be able to see it. Sorry, I can't no. tell them. But at some point, maybe they'll immortalize it at some point.
3: Maybe. I you know there's something, you know, we've thought about. Oh, well, like last year, there was a thing. Oh, do we do like a Zoom version? But there's just something about the event as an event. And the audience plays just as important a role, really, as the cast at this point, you know, since it's mm-hmm. the same people every year. Uh, you know, and, and their response to... Performers coming on stage who aren't well, aren't known at all in many cases, and get a huge round of applause when they enter because <laughs> the audience has seen them for 22 years, uh, one night a year. It, it's very it's magical. It re- really is.
1: Well, I'm glad you're reviving it. I'm sorry you missed one year, but you're back. Um, all right, I'm bringing our whole panel on. Let's bring Michael Riedel, hey, Riedel. Bruce Flanch.
2: Hey,
3: hey. Well, Michael. Okay. Michael live lives live in the same neighborhood, but I haven't seen you on the street in a long time.
2: I the last time I saw you, you were making the movie that just right. came out, and I walked over to say hello to you, and this massive security security detail descended on me and said, "Get
3: away! Keep away! Keep away!" Said,
2: Charles, it's me! As they were kicking me on the other side. Of the I
3: street. said, "I told myself, I don't know who that. I don't know who that guy is." <laughs> <laughs> Lose him.
2: Charles, I have to tell you something. This always amused me about uh, your plays. One of your plays that I loved, I think it was from 1991, a Red Scare on Sunset. And it was such an interesting play because you actually wrote about the fact that there were really communists in Hollywood. And I think you, were, you played a woman in a, a movie and the communists are infiltrating the movie. And I remember the reviews were hilarious because a place, a nice liberal place like the New York Times was like, How dare he say that there were really communists in Hollywood? But then in the Wall Street Journal and the John Birch Society, (laughs) all the conservatives
3: absolutely loved you
2: for saying that there were communists in
3: Hollywood. Well, it's so ridiculous. First of all, you know, when I decided to write a comedy about the um, blacklist, period, I didn't I just didn't think I couldn't think of anything particularly funny about some poor leftists who's hounded out of their Job, but I thought it could be kind of perverse, funny if you did it as a right wing nightmare. And what if everything they, you know, drummed up was actually true? So I played this kind of Loretta Young sort of movie actress who, to her horror, discovers that her husband, her best friend, her houseboy, her director, all in a communist plot. It had kind of a rosemary baby feel to it. But I, I assumed, and at the end, with great nobility of purpose, she names names. Including her, <laughs> and I just assumed that everybody watching it would just know that I'm being tongue in cheek that we I'm saying, and you know, in a way, I was trying to make some sort of point that the most extreme left and the most extreme right actually yeah. believe the same things. Yeah, and particularly yeah. when it comes to gay people, you know, the extreme right, extreme left don't want to deal with it. So, yeah, it's, but but like the, the times. It was it was frustrating because Frank Rich was supposed to review it, and then I think his mother died, and and he couldn't come in. No excuse. And um, <laughs> so Mel Gusso covered it, who was the first time leftist. I of course, he hated it. I know. But How then Donald, I?
2: but then Donald Lyons, a total right-wing crackpot from the Wall Street Journal, gave you a review and loved it.
3: Oh, and then then get this. I was friends with the wonder, the wonderful. Uh, cabaret singer mary clear heron yeah. who who died young and it just and um she was married to joe guilford whose parents you know oh, were blacklisted yeah and she she saw the show and loved it so much that she somehow brought with her back like the entire surviving hollywood 10 <laughs> and, <laughs> and they didn't care for it <laughs> It didn't find it funny
1: <laughs> um i'm Don't curious know. bruce bruce you um you're in los angeles and things have opened up people have been going to shows theater has started to re-bloom have you gone to things and what has your experience been with theater in la uh
0: but i haven't gone to much i mean i i really hadn't gone to any theater i mean uh in in two years but i <laughs> I went to Randy Rainbow, who played the Orpheum downtown over the Last weekend. Last week, and yes. I to, and I went to the opening of Head Over Heels at the Pasadena Playhouse, which is uh, which they torn apart and kind of turned into uh, Hal Prince's Candide. They <laughs> they took out all the seats in the orchestra and they put in uh, uh, a, a dance what they call a dance floor, but a lot of people stand around, and so we were up like the first row of the mezzanine, looking down where they've also built scaffolding so that the actors can run past. And in the middle of the <laughs> the middle of the orchestra, what was the orchestra pit, there's a, a, a stand where they have Leo Delaria like Tanya the elephant standing in a, <laughs> a circus stand. And she has to do all of her stuff on this it's kind of bizarre. And and this, the actual stage house is a stadium seating for the rest of the orchestra on on the two sides a bizarre spectacle, look. Uh, but that's those, those have been nothing else has opened up except of course Hamilton. Hamilton yes. came in first and it's been at the Vantage's and uh, remains I, at the Vantages. And I assume I, they're I, selling tickets.
2: Can I tell you I am just I am I am sick of Hamilton, and I'm sick of the. Oh, Lin Manuel Miranda! I mean, uh, John was- Adams, back to bed. That's I the lyric from I mean, Hamilton. I can't take it anymore. I just can't take it. I never could. I mean, it was. I, I I
0: found it monotonous and reductive. But it is so. I'm such a minority opinion. I don't even
2: bother. When to people me, bring it up, I just say Don Adams, back to bed. I mean, to me, so to, to me, it's like they they all walk out and they say, "My name is Alexander Hamilton. I was the secretary the secretary secretary of the." Not a fifth grader, all right. And then I went to see, I went to see a, a preview just before I saw it at the public theater and was not a fan. Then I saw a preview just before it opened on Broadway, and I kid you not, I'm sitting there, and the audience is, and I love this. I mean, it's all you know, it's a multiracial cast and all this. Everybody in the audience is the richest white people on the planet because they're, <laughs> they're the to-
1: only ones that can <laughs> afford it.
2: Well, yeah. Right, a thousand dollars a ticket to see it. They can afford it, right? And I'm and I'm sitting there, and and. Uh, Leslie Odov Jr. walks out and says, my name is Aaron Burr, sir. And a woman behind me says, oh, the rhyming is so brilliant. <laughs> 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 yeah, like that. And I whipped around. I said, have you ever heard of Stephen Sondheim? And we're right back to the <laughs> like The cult of Lin-Manuel Miranda is out of control.
1: Well, you know, this, this brings up something I wanted to mention to you, Michael. When you were on this show last time, we talked about what theater would look like when the coronavirus pandemic was over. And you had a lot of hope that theater prices would go down, that it would lead the way for maybe great visionary prof- uh, producers to bring plays back, to have little theater and just better quality work. Do you see any of that on the horizon?
2: No, I've seen the future, and the future is that every theater on Broadway is going to be named after Lin Manuel Miranda. <laughs> Miranda. Shows in them, so um, you know, I do hope. This, I do hope plays come back. There are a lot of plays out there now that, frankly, are struggling because the audience for plays is generally an an older New York audience, and uh, I know a lot of my older friends who were regular theater goers for all these all those years they're a little scared still. They worried about the Delta strain and a lot of them tell me that we're not ready to go back and sit with 1500 people. We're going to let the winter play out, see how that goes. And maybe in the spring, but you know, Charles, you know, this business and and so do you, Bruce, you let the winter play out with people not showing up. The shows are not going to be able to survive.
1: Have you got Michael, have you gone to theater since things have opened up and what's been your, how safe do you feel?
2: I mean, I feel fine. You know, I'm double vaccinated. I'm going to get a booster shot uh, later this week or next week, I guess. And also, I I just, I'm ready to go on with life. I I think we can't close everything down again. We just can't. I mean, so many of our friends in this business lost their livelihoods. I mean, you know, Bruce, Charles, you know, I kept my radio show going. We're the lucky ones. You know, we've been able to survive. But I'm sure all of you know many people who just had to give it all up and and leave the city because they, they couldn't afford it. So- I don't think we can shut it down again. I think people have to get used to the fact that the coronavirus is never going to go away, and it's going to be like the flu. You know, we don't shut down theaters because we have the flu every year. We're going to get a shot, and we'll go about our lives. Uh, you can't close down. You can't close down society again. And it was just devastating for the theater. And the theater's not out of it yet. You know, the ticket no. prices. You no. Know, they're 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 clawing their way back, but it's a uh, it's very slow, and, and the ticket. Prices and there's are not, no
0: trans. There's no transparency. No one knows yeah. how many tickets anything is selling. Exactly.
1: Well, because they're not reporting them anymore. They're, not, I mean, they're that's... reporting
0: the, gr- the gross of the yeah. Yeah. overall gross. Yeah. The whole street. Yeah. They're not, yeah. but they're not breaking down to the other shows. And there are enterprising there are people who are going onto the websites every day of the shows and looking to see what the seating charts look like. And oh. They're, and they're reporting back what's actually selling and what actually isn't selling. Yeah. Well,
1: I'm curious, you know, I'm curious, Charles, since you're, you know, you're on both sides of this because you are a performer and playwright, but you're also a great fan and champion of theater. Where do you come down this? Have you felt comfortable going to anything?
3: Well, honey, I, I haven't seen a play since uh, Blossom Time in 1919. <laughs> I, I, I never go to the theater, darling. I try never to go to the
2: theater. <laughs> now, the only play he gets is the of the allergist's wife.
3: <laughs> my last time I was at a show was, I was just like <laughs> no, no. It's funny too because when I was very young, I knew this marvelous old Irish um, hard-drinking character, uh, Jimmy Cahill, and oh, I was yeah. so young, and, and he would you know be over at my place, and and I'd ask him if he'd see some show. I never go to the theater, ah! <laughs> and uh, and I, oh, I, I, he, he said he said he said going to the theater is like going to somebody else's half hour, and. Uh, I was... <laughs> Paul that, you know, at at 22 years old, I've turned into Jimmy Gale. I never never go. I go to the movies occasionally, you know, you know, I I always like going to movies on Tuesdays at 1145.
1: With your sister.
3: Yeah, with my sister. And so we go and I've never been in a movie theater with more than four people in it. You know, know, really?
2: One of the things things that um, does concern me, and I don't I don't think the theater people have quite grasped this yet. And I probably fall in this category because, you know, back in the heyday of the theater columnist, I never missed anything. I was at the theater four or five nights a week. But sure. people have fallen out of the habit. And That's true. It, it's it. We forgot how much work it is to actually go to the theater, especially if you live if you live in the suburbs. You now got to drive in. First of all, you're not going to work yet. Right. So the office buildings are not full. It was easy if mm-hmm. you're working, meet your wife afterward. Let's have a drink at Sardis, go to the theater. But if you're in Larchmont, if you're in Long Island, if you're in New Jersey, you're really going to pile into the car around five o'clock to come. It's in, a schlep. Go to the theater. Yes. It is. But, it really you is. Know, and I think people have just gotten out of the habit.
0: The rule generally is one hit changes everything. That's mm-hmm. an, uh, and Hugh Jackman job. and the Music Man might be that four quadrant audience uh, yeah. appeal show that brings things back. And once people do it, and they say, "Okay, we live." And, what else uh, is here?
3: But, aren't, yeah, the, but aren't the ticket prices like six hundred dollars a ticket? Or oh, something? I mean, Billy Crystal's uh, the
0: last row of the balcony the Saturday night is one hundred ninety-nine dollars.
2: Well, that's that. I mean, that is just. I'll tell you this. I mean, I don't. I don't. I did not wish COVID on any one of us, anybody, any industry. But I did have a feeling. And I'm, you know, I'm a capitalist and, you know, my friends on Broadway take chances and I'm delighted when Charles Bush has a tale of the algist's wife and you can make good money. I mean, I'm all for that. But I really thought before COVID things were getting a little obscene. I mean, I know, I came here in the 80s. You could see Lend Me a tenor, the half price ticket booth for twenty five, thirty bucks. You know, now the half price ticket booth before COVID was five hundred dollars. That price? What's a five hundred dollar? It was. Yeah. It was really. I mean, for the theater that you you guys knew when you were in New York, and and I caught the tail end of. It was open for everybody, and that's what made it fertile yeah. and fun. And then it became. It really did become this thing for just the one percent.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I have a friend that just did a London trip and he went to see a bunch of shows. London is still an affordable city in terms of going to the theater. Now, maybe not the biggest hits, but you can still buy tickets for $40 and get good seats.
2: Charles, Charles, yeah. what were you charging for your for the very first runway show you did? What, what, what was, was the, the top job? ticket for? You
3: know, I, I, hmm, I wonder... Probably, <laughs> uh, Two dollars and seventy five cents. <laughs> <laughs> but long time ago, you yeah. know, I mean you, you
0: it's always when you're comparing stuff in in eighties dollars with stuff yeah. in, in two thousand I mean, it's yeah. always the argument is kind of specious because everything has to become inflated. Yeah. our a when, when Hamilton does three million dollars a week and they are selling the same fifteen hundred seats that Gwen Burden sold in Dan Yankee. Yeah, and, right. you know, right. and and with Pulling in three hundred thousand, maybe. Uh, I mean, part of that is inflation, but part of it also—it started with the producers twenty years ago, right. the, which the Michael gets,
1: writes about gets, in gets his book.
0: Get a piece book. of that premium of that markup that brokers are charging. Right. That began dynamic pricing. That's dynamic right. pricing is what the market will bear, and and the awful truth is, the market for the theater will bear that because
2: it's the one percent that's interested in going to. Listen, the thing with Hugh Jackman is they don't have any tickets to sell because they sold 30 million before COVID and they were able to keep that advance because they just kept the people were going to push it back, push it back, push it back. So they never had to refund anything. So they were sitting on a pile of money. So those tickets were already sold. And because it's Hugh Jackman, everybody was like, I will whenever I can go to see him, I've already got the ticket, which is golden. I will wait until he opens.
1: Yeah, but I remember, Michael, you and I talking about the fact that the shows that you thought of as bulletproof might not be bulletproof when theaters reopen because New Yorkers have all seen Chicago and have all seen, and yet they've marketed it so cleverly that the 25th anniversary, you have to come back and see it again. So even those shows are enduring.
2: Well, the issue is there's been a lot of publicity for Broadway. And as Bruce points out, uh, they're selling tickets, but you're not going to know exactly what price point they're selling them. And you have to remember the economic has not changed. You know, the unions did not give anything back for Broadway and Broadway built itself up on the idea of dynamic pricing, that you could sell a ticket for a show, even a show like Chicago, you could sell for five hundred dollars on a Friday or Saturday night. Sell enough of those tickets, you can afford to pay the union cost that went up and up. They're not selling those tickets at that price now, but they haven't been giving any reduction in their cost structure. So when you hit January, February, and March, and you know Charles and Bruce, you know, uh, that's always a bit of a struggle for theater, those cold winter months. Right. Um, a lot of shows are going to, uh, I think, are going to fade away. I do have a funny story that Hugh Jackman told me, I, I put it in this uh, piece that's I've done a profile for uh, about him for Vanity Fair that's coming out for The Music Man. And when he, you guys remember when he came back to Broadway with his one-man show, Hugh Jackman, back on Broadway? And he mm-hmm. played 10 and grossed $20 million. I mean, it was the hottest thing of all time. I think the top ticket maybe back then was 500 bucks. But the scalpers were getting $1,000, $1,500 a seat for the orchestra. So one day, Hugh, who used to ride his bike up to work, he would chain his bike up at the end of the block on 44th street. He was at the Broadhurst and he's uh, sauntering down the Broadhurst with his sunglasses on, you know, trying to be incognito, which is hard for him because he's 18 feet tall. <laughs> and this little, little creepy little guy comes up to him and says, I've got tickets for Hugh Jackman tonight. And he, he, he lowers the sunglasses. and He goes, I am Hugh Jackman might This guy, red. <laughs>
1: you know, um, I think, uh, Michael, you brought up a good point just uh, a minute ago, which is that people will not be quarantined again. And I actually agree with you. And I had this conversation with somebody last week that even if there's another spike, I am very... Uh, I just—I'm completely skeptical that people will stay in again. So I agree with you. I think that we have to learn to adapt to this. And I'm curious for somebody like Charles, you and I talked about that because you're a writer and you're used to being home. You are able to keep creating, but it had to have still gotten to you.
3: Well, you know, I—you know—I am a little bit at uh, the times. Uh, like a, a, a less frenzied um, emily dickinson you know i do spend a lot, a lot of time here with my poetry my when poetry.
1: i describe you that is how i'm going to describe you from I, now on
3: my needlecraft, you know I don't <laughs> sitting at, at my loom as michael well knows um you know i i worked on my memoirs darling i it's, it's endless you know it's I see it eventually boxed like Proust, you know, in four volumes. <laughs> <laughs> get my memoirs, I get very busy, darling. You know, um, just doing watercolors.
2: <laughs> Honestly, I have to be honest with you guys. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mind it that much. Um, no. First of all, I did not have to sit through a bunch of crappy shows that I had to do for years of my life. <laughs> but you know what I did? Because, uh, you know, I like to exercise every day and do something, but the gyms were all closed and... It was getting cold. But what I would do is I would I would ride my bike all over the city after I finished my Mm -hmm. show. Then I jump on the bike and I would pick neighborhoods in the city. uh, And I put my architectural guide to New York City in my backpack and I would pick a neighborhood and I would just explore it because nobody was there. I mean, I I rode my bike down to Wall Street the end of March 2020 when everything was shut down. There was not a car in sight. There was not a human being in the wall street wow. area. There are amazing buildings. I mean, the Cunard building, no one, no one would ever notice it down there. The Cunard building is gorgeous. And I, you know, you couldn't get into anything, but I looked through the glass. The lobby of the Cunard building is spectacular. The standard oil building across the street. I never knew these things exist. I rode my bike across the Brooklyn bridge one afternoon. I was the only person on the Brooklyn bridge. Jeez. It's it amazing. It
3: so wonderful in New York city about that. You know, I, I, I find i I'm sure for many people living well, in any city, there's basically a certain path that you always take or a certain neighborhood that where you just always are. And you know I live in the West Village, and I, I see that, and then I sometimes I go to midtown. And for the most part, that's what I see. But once in a while, I, you know you find yourself just all of a sudden you know twenty sixth street and Second Avenue, and it's like, oh my God, it's like I'm in Bulgaria. You know, <laughs> it's,
2: it's it's and, and Bruce in LA. Bruce, did you go by to the old site of the Brown Derby? Uh, yes. Oh, well, that I didn't would fight! Be fun. Uh,
0: <laughs> I, drove, I drove to in LA, and I wanted to make sure the battery didn't die. So every day I would take her out, and it was on the beach. It was desolation. The, the, the homeless were, were gone. Where would they go? All of a sudden, yeah, we where were they? I don't know, but you know, I miss I live in Hollywood, and so I miss walking out my door and having seven guys dressed as Spider-Man coming up saying hello. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh,
1: Those I, were I, the understudies and, and, for like, that show, Michael.
0: <laughs> but I drove around a lot, and it was, uh, it, I mean, it didn't it didn't look like old Hollywood because so much has been built, but it was it did look like the back on some studio. There was nothing happening anywhere, and it was kind of eerie coyote looking around going, where is everybody? Nobody's there. Where are they all? So well, I was,
1: just went back I just was back in LA I guess last month for the first time in a year and a half in my own apartment which just sort of like a time capsule because I thought I was leaving for a month and it was right. just all sitting there and I but you looked outside now and it looks like nothing has changed. To it's, me it as looks like back. business is usual.
2: And, and, a lot and, of and... it's
0: because they've, they've been pretty stringent you know, it, it, you mm-hmm. do have to show vaccination proof to get into anything indoors. Right. And so once you're indoors and you're wearing a mask, you, you're fairly confident. Everybody there has been vaccinated, and they're not just telling it to you. They're not signing it on. They have to show you proof. And they haven't faked the vaccination card all of them. So uh,
2: actually, you, somebody...
0: you, you get a feeling of comfort even though you know that it's uh, it's, it's a new normal and it's not for forever. Yeah, So. That encourages people to go. And, of course, it's L.A. And it's, so even the coldest night, you're sitting outside eating under a heater. Uh, so it's not. It's not <laughs> you don't eat so, heaters uh, in LA. Come on. You know. Charles, oh, it gets cold at night. The out-of-work actors are taking jobs as you. <laughs> Charles, Charles, I, have you, a few, you. I have a few in my yard now. <laughs> no, they can't, they Charles, can't all know. walk Lady Gaga's Bulldogs. They have to do other things. Right,
2: that's good. <laughs> Charles, do you remember, uh, I guess it would have been, not this past summer, but the summer of COVID, so 2020. Where the they,
3: summer of COVID.
2: The summer of COVID, but they started doing outdoor <laughs> dining. spelling and, Right. They started doing outdoor dining, and there was that false sense of security that I had in the West Village.
0: Yeah.
2: That, yeah. Uh, things were coming back to normal because we're eating outside. It was a beautiful summer of 2020, and you thought, "Okay, we're getting through this." And then, man, we got slammed again when November Delta.
3: Delta. Yeah, Delta. yeah, but I just say, uh, there's something very um, charming, certainly in, in in our neighborhood in West Village, where uh, almost the competition with every restaurant who's uh, building is shed. yeah, you know, whose culpa uh, could be you know the more, most glamorous, and you know it's something very very. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen again in the in you know, a. I mean, they have heaters, but still, I. I mean, do people really sit outside in in those little uh, huts when it's snowing? You know, probably. It. It's been yeah, but I guess I mean, you know people really do adapt to everything, and no, we're just getting they used. Guess. to I think we're getting used to this new normal, and uh, it is what it is. You I have, have to, to say though,
2: know. the the pioneers that I really admired this, my uh, girlfriend now my fiance Christina, whom you met, Charles. Um, oh, you we decided to get married with COVID because we yeah. had nothing else to do. Uh, so. Um, we that summer, we both were both runners, and we would be running around June and um, July, and all of a sudden you saw all these people together on the West Side Highway in the park there near us, and there were no masks, and you knew these people were not all sheltering in place. But I have to say. <laughs> And I loved it for it. They were all they were all these gay guys with their shirts off and they were hanging out, drinking bottles of wine. And they were like, we are done with this thing. <laughs> no, I'm with no. Not good for you guys.
1: <laughs> Michael, can you tell the story again um, of when Christina called you? You were some, skiing someplace like Gestad or the Dolomites or someplace when you found out about COVID.
2: Well, I finished my book, which I will... Uh, Plug here, um, singular yes. which I'm
0: in,
2: which uh, yes, uh, Bruce, there it is. is.
0: I'm I'm taking yeah, you know, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce has Bruce addict, has
2: a good, I love it. Bruce has the best. Charles Bruce has the best line in the book. My favorite line of all okay. time. I went to the very first preview of Titanic. Remember Maury Eston, Peter Stone's Titanic.
1: Oh yes,
2: and remember uh, it ran four or five mm-hmm. hours. It was it was, <laughs> it was it was the biggest fiasco of all time. So I got a ticket somehow to see the first preview. And I sit down on my seat and Bruce is sitting next to me. And we come to the very end of the show after about seven or eight hours. I think it was (laughs) (laughs) and they um, they were unable to sink the ship at the end for technical reasons. And Bruce turns to me and he says musical about the Titanic where the ship doesn't sink. That's novel.
0: The <laughs> <laughs> one thing when you went in there, you knew how it ended. Yeah, surprise. surprise! And then, the you, surprise know, it the same, you know, he killed Hitler at the movies in Paris. Who knew? <laughs> That's well, what you want in the You want a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> be a different, new
2: twist right. to the plot. <laughs> there's a government everywhere. Going. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, Billy. What was your question?
1: The question was when you were, you were skiing someplace okay. and your girlfriend at the time called you to tell you what was going on. Because you thought that you had finished a book, you were going to turn in your manuscript and then life would continue.
2: Yeah, no, I finished the uh, manuscript for the book. I turned in, it into my editor at Simon & Schuster and I thought, okay, well, I deserve a little little treat. So I uh, took myself skiing in Zermatt,
1: Switzerland. All right, Zermatt. Okay.
2: And, uh, you know, I'm zipping along. And the big thing was it was going to be Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden to win the uh, Democratic primary. That was the big thing because this is the first week of March 2020. Right. And there was this thing called the coronavirus that I was paying no attention to because it was on some ship in Seattle. And I thought (laughs) never going to come my way. (laughs) Um, And then one day it was the most beautiful day, one of the most beautiful days of my life. I'm skiing right by the Matterhorn and you could take the tram all the way up go over the border into northern Italy. I spent the day skiing in Italy. I was at uh, this fabulous restaurant on the slopes and I had a glass of white wine and I took a picture of the wine with a Matterhorn in the background and I sent it to Christina and I said I'm in Italy and she said where? I said I just skied over the uh, the border. I'm in northern Italy. And she said, "Do you have any clue what's going on?" <laughs> <laughs> It was, spiking. it was, it was suddenly, it was spiking in Northern Italy. I said, I said, no, she said, get out of there. Right. So, well, Italy
1: was the, Italy
2: was ground zero at that moment. It's going to take some time. And guys, I kid you not, two days later, Chervinia, where I was, the resort completely mm-hmm. shut down because they had a massive outbreak of COVID. Wow. But I mean, I flew home on a plane. Nobody had masks on. We were kind of laughing and joking about it. I got back here to New York. March 10th, I got back here. Right. And I'm thinking, this is, this. I mean, what, what's going on here? Come on, let's not be. Real. And then all of a sudden, the governor, I think it was March 12th, Charles, where yeah. he announced he was shutting down We're everything. Right. Remember right. we Everything. All, we, all, we all thought two weeks. Didn't you think two weeks? I thought two weeks. Tom. Absolutely. Right. I was doing a play,
3: um, uh, The Confession of Lily Dare. And fortunately, yeah. our um, uh, limited run ended March 5th. I mean just the nick of nick of time yeah right
1: and I had uh, come did back to me- Boston oh go ahead Charles I'll
3: just tell you uh, kind of a funny story was that the next thing the next week I was being honored at the same cabaret award thing called the Bistro awards and I sh- walked in to, it was like in a cabaret setting and tova, tova Felchu was sitting at a table near the entrance and I started to know her but you know, I, I didn't really feel like saying hello. <laughs> so I, I moved mean kind of fast. I, and I saw her cross through. So I said, hi, Tova. And I sat in my seat. Well, wouldn't you know, a few weeks later, she came down with COVID. And everybody in her table <laughs> got sick. So if I had gone over, if I would felt a little more warmer toward her, you know. There you go. you would have died.
0: That's right. But before we run out. You're like, you're like the stories of people who missed the train to the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. there's actually a book
2: full of that shit who almost were on the Titanic I have to tell you my, my favorite Tova Felcher story because we should all have Tova Felcher stories as we yeah. should so, so Toba's on Broadway she's doing um, Golda's Balcony remember when she was playing Golda My yeah. yes, was, was, was Golda's Balcony we used to call it Toba's Annuity because she you knew she could <laughs> right. all, all over the place so September 11th hits, okay? You know, uh. knocked down. A week later, I'm walking down 44th Street because she's at the uh, the Golden Theater. And there's nobody around. I mean, you know, it was a week after the thing, but Broadway had come back uh, that Thursday, the 13th. So people were going to shows, but it was pretty quiet in Times Square though. And I'm walking down, I think it was from um, uh, Angus McAdoo's, uh restaurant. So I'm walking mm-hmm. down the street and all of a sudden I see these two big security bodyguards with all these things on and they come out of the golden theater and they look up and down the street check check all clear all clear cars there all clear tova comes running out into the car she (laughs) felt she would be a terrorist target
3: (laughs) (laughs) because
1: she was playing gold well
3: for many reasons for many reasons actually you know you got you got to love an actress you know in the Aldrich's wife, at that point, um, Valerie Harper was in the show, and and Michelle Lee was in the cast. And so when they um, when we were getting, the theaters were coming back, uh, Valerie asked me if I'd write her a little speech to say in the curtain call, just welcoming people back to New York and the theater. And so you know, I took that rather seriously. And. Um, so I wrote the speech for her, but then Michelle Lee, she wanted to make a speech too. <laughs> said, well, you of know, course maybe, she did. Maybe it's best, you know, if, if just Valerie makes a speech. Oh, really? Uh, so yeah, <laughs> so I went that night to see what was, you know, this big event. The theater returns to New York. And uh, there was a very old lady in there, or Cheryl Bernheim, played the mother. It was on a walker, yeah. a little lady. She was and, fabulous. And so anyway, so Valerie, you know, curtain call, she makes her her speech and it's very emotional and and the audience is so happy here rhoda welcoming them back to new york and just as they start applause michelle stops them And, and yeah. like, what is she going to do and she said i think you should all know that today is cheryl bernheim's 80th birthday <laughs> <laughs> wow i mean you gotta love an actress right that is oh.
0: Oh. That's almost as good as Debbie Reynolds dying the day after Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate update is it. Well, it's I'm all so
1: about so who so gets you final know,
0: cur- I, final bow. I'll show you. Was there a <laughs> tip to find in that one? In those that one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, while we're talking about death, I think that is the end of the show. Guys, I want to thank you all for being here. This has been so much fun. I could do this forever with you. My special guests, Bruce Valanche, Michael Riedel, Charles Bush. Thank you all so much for being here. If you hang around, we can talk a little more, but I do have to end the show. Bye, guys. And everyone else out there. Thank you for watching Billy Masters Live. Next week, you've got the week off. Have a Thanksgiving. Have a lovely um, holiday. And we will see you the week after. I don't have my schedule in front of me, so I have no idea who's here. Is it Darlene Love? It might be. Nobody's telling me anything backstage. Anyway, thank you. Have a great Thanksgiving. And we will talk in two weeks. Bye, guys. And remember, this was Billy Masters Live. God, I always forget my own outro. If we're here, we're live. Bye.